Open your Bibles up if you have them to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're looking at the passage which is on church discipline. Uh, this passage, I think, in the Scandalous series, we've titled it Scandalous Stepmothers and Sexual Immorality or Church Discipline. That's just disgusting, isn't it? I, I think a better title may be See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Speak No Gospel. The necessity and scope of church discipline. That's what we're looking at this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's tie this into the surrounding portions of the book. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll see there in verse 2, it says you're arrogant. Now, last week we talked about pride. We talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and how you were puffed up, how you were arrogant. And so, not you, but how they were. And as they were arrogant and puffed up with their pride, Paul continues that discussion So he transitions out of the divisions. He transitions out of some people thinking they knew how to lead better than others. Some people thinking they had worldly wisdom rather than godly wisdom. He goes into the pride section. The pride section leads then into the church discipline section because they're so prideful and so arrogant that they're not addressing discipline in their midst. They think they know better how to do it than what God has. And in this transitionary section, you see the transition from the pride discussion into sexual immorality and into harming or jeopardizing your witness before others so that if we don't address sin that's within the church, we harm our witness, the witness of the church, the testimony of Christ before a lost world who looks at the church and they say, look at the hypocrites, they act no different than us. And that moves us right along into chapter six. And in the beginning of chapter six, next week or the week after, we will talk about how going to court before unbelievers to get justice or righteousness or whatever we would like to call it, taking our troubles before unbelievers harms our witness as well. And then in the latter part of chapter six, you see how sexual immorality harms your personal witness also. And so this transitions from the puffed up with pride into the harming your witness through that arrogance and pride and sexual immorality and taking court before the unbelievers. And so here we come to a section on church discipline which breaks down pretty simply. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 8 form one paragraph in the Greek text. 9 through 13 form a second paragraph in the Greek text. And so those will be the two points. The first is the necessity of discipline. The second is the scope of discipline. You'll see in verse 1, it actually gives you the problem. Verse 2 through 5 is where Paul provides an evaluation and a solution. Verse 6 through 8, he gives you the analogy. And then in verses 9 through 13, he addresses the scope. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then we'll walk back up and go through it. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present, and with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, 
Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would have to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, or drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Sal Moeller, who said that the absence of church discipline is no longer remarkable in general, it's not even noticed. John L. Dagg said that it has been remarkable that when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. Jonathan Lehman, recently writing, said an undisciplined church membership is an undiscipled church membership. It will be weak, flabby, foolish, and unchaste. And that's frankly what we see at many churches. Not to speak bad about our churches. I love our churches. I want to hold our churches high. But you've seen it as often as I have where sin is in a church and it has not gone addressed and it has caused the churches to lose their witness. And so church discipline in this passage is what is Paul is commanding and what Paul is saying needs to happen. And I want to tell you today that church discipline is a command that occurs in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 where it says whatever you bind on this earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose will be loosed in heaven. Matthew 18 gives us the steps to go through a personal or private case of church discipline so that we go one on one, we go back with two or three, we take it before the church, and then excommunication occurs if necessary. We see in the book of Hebrews how the father disciplines those he loves and that children are disciplined. That's how you know you're a child of the father. We do this in our own lives when we discipline our own children, not because we don't like them, but because we love them and we want to see them grow and we want to see them develop and we want to shepherd their heart toward God. We want them to know there are consequences to things that they do wrong. We see all throughout the New Testament in various passages where we are told not to associate with certain people. We see it in Matthew 18, in 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, 1, restore someone to themselves. Romans 16, 17 and 18, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and in 14 and 15, we see it in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Church discipline is an absolute necessity that we must have. Otherwise, we jeopardize the actual witness of the church. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was outside shooting basketball. I used to love just to go outside and shoot ball with my friends. And then, you know, even when they wouldn't, wouldn't want to play, I'd, I'd just shoot. I'd work on a turnaround, fade away. I'd work on some crossover skills. And I was playing ball. And I'd play ball for so long that I'd start getting real hot, real sweaty. And I'd start feeling the shakes. Anybody out there ever had the shakes where you, you just get kind of antsy a little bit? A couple of you have them. And you want, what do you do when you get the shake? So I don't know what I'm supposed to do because this is probably really bad medical advice, but I go inside and get sweet tea and a Swiss cake roll. Some of those are starting to show up a little bit, so I'm going to have to cut back on that. But the Swiss cake rolls are just great because you have to eat them the right way, right? You take the ends off and you unroll it so that you get all the cake without touching the white, and then you get the creamy white filling at the end. That's like the prize if you do it right. And so I was eating my Swiss cake roll and sweet tea. Now, I don't mean Ohio sweet tea. No offense. I mean South Carolina sweet tea. Anybody out there testify? I mean sweet tea that's so sweet that at the bottom of the clear glass, there's this little film of something that you don't really know what it is, but if you shake it a little bit, it'll kind of go up and then it'll settle right back down because there's so much sugar in the bottom of that. It's like eating sweet tarts after you get to the very end of it, right? So I took a big gulp of that sweet tea and all of a sudden pain shot from the back of my mouth almost as though it went straight up into my brain. 
Well, coming from the Elvis Presley School of Medicine, I knew that if I took two Advil, it would cure whatever I had in four hours. So if I took four Advil, it would cure it in two hours. So I took six Advil. (laughs) And all I got was a really bad stomach ache and a throbbing tooth still pulsing in the side of my cheek. So what do you do when that happens? Well, you do what any person does. You decide it's a good time to take up a good habit of flossing, right? You know, you go by day after day and you look at that floss sitting in the cabinet and you decide it's sleepy or it's tired or it doesn't want to be disturbed and you just go right past it. All of a sudden, when your teeth begin to hurt, you decide, I need to floss. It's that reminder, right? And so you do what any person has to do. You go to that place of purgatory that we call a dentist office. I walked in and I sat down in a nice comfortable chair and I grabbed a hold of the side, left my permanent finger indentions in both arms and sat there and waited on Dr. Kevorkian to come in and roll in his chairs. And he rolls in all of his instruments and he pulls them out and he says, what seems to be the problem? And he's so concerned about my well-being and my care that he opens my mouth and takes out a really sharp instrument and begins to jab it repeatedly into the point of pain going, does that hurt? Does that hurt? Does that hurt? And then he says, we're going to make you better. I have my doubts at this point as to whether he's going to make me better or not. And all of a sudden he stops and he looks and he says, you have a problem. I knew that already. I don't know why I'm paying this guy to tell me I have a problem. But he tells me that I have a problem with, I need endodontic therapy in my pulp chamber. I don't know what in the world this is. He's holding a sharp instrument. My life flashes before my eyes right away. And then second of all, I think... Ain't nobody messing with my pulp chamber. (laughs) And then I think, what in the world is a pulp chamber? (laughs) So I asked the dentist, and he said, for those of you who don't know, as I didn't, you need a root canal. I said, okay, what is that? Well, I come to find out that's where he pulls out his Jack Bauer drill, and he drills a hole right in your mouth. And then he proceeds to get roots that had been damaged because of the lack of flossing that I had. And it had caused decay in a tooth so that the roots were beginning to die. And he said if he didn't get them out, that tooth would eventually die and become discolored. And because your teeth are only about three inches from your brain, that some people have actually died from... In- now, I don't know if this is true. It's just what the dentist was telling me. They have actually died from infection there before. And so he has to drill a hole in my tooth, get all of that out, sticking these wire things up in your tooth. I think he's smiling the whole time he's doing this. I think that's how he relieves stress. And eventually, he sticks some kind of stuff up inside of your tooth to make sure that it's going to be okay. Well, it's still okay, so maybe he knew what he was doing after all. But it was painful. It was very painful. The process of neglect that had happened over all the years, the cavity that had built up, took pain to remove it and to repair it. In a church situation, it's not very different. In a life situation, it's not very different. And that if you neglect, if you overlook, if you don't take care of your spiritual disciplines, if you don't look out for the church and the health of the church and the membership of the church, what you're going to find is that you're in a situation that requires a painful remedy that has to take place in order for it to be fixed. You know, I've looked over and over to find a seeker-sensitive dentist, but I've yet to find one anywhere in the world. And so here we encounter the problem of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported there's sexual immorality among you and that of a kind not even tolerated among the pagans for a man has his father's wife. 
Now, can we all say at one time, ooh? Isn't that just disgusting? A man has his father's wife. Now, a few things we should know. It doesn't say that this is adultery, so perhaps the father is dead or no longer there. There's been a divorce. It doesn't say that it's his mom, and so it's probably a stepmom and not actually his mother, which makes it a little less Freudian or a little less like one of the plays that we would see about in the Greek tragedies. And so probably a stepmom, but that makes it nonetheless absolutely disgusting and not tolerated by anybody. In fact, Deuteronomy 22.30 says, a man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Ooh, there we go again. Deuteronomy 27.20 says, cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Leviticus 18.8 also forbids it. We also see in this that this woman is probably not a member of the church. Otherwise, it would be addressing her as well. It's just addressing him. But here's the point I really want you to get is apparently this guy had been sleeping with his stepmom and then he had been showing up for church and he didn't see a problem with it. And so Paul's having to write and tell the whole church there's a problem here because the church apparently didn't see a problem with it either and nobody had addressed it. That's where we are many times in our society today. We look around and we say, we can't address something because that's going to be intolerant. We can't address something because that's going to be cruel. When in actuality, when we don't address sin in the lives of those we love and those we care about, that is what's cruel. Because we're not telling them, you're destroying your life. We're not telling them, look, you've got a cavity, but I've got to fix this. I've got to help you fix this. Even if it's painful, we've got to get this sin out of your life so that you'll be healthy and restored to a right relationship with Christ. It says here that there's a sexual immorality that even the pagans would not tolerate. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. And that goes back to the previous chapter where you're puffed up with pride. You're not addressing the sin. Ought you not rather to mourn? Shouldn't it break your heart that there's one among you who is caught up in such sin and caught up in sleeping with his stepmom? Let this him who has done this be removed from among you. And here's the first time in what will be four different mentions of where Paul is telling them to move this person out from among you. You'll see the second one there in verse five, deliver him over to Satan. You'll see the next one in verse six, for a little leaven leavens the whole lump and so you clean it out. You'll see another one there at the very end where it says purge the evil from among you in verse 13. And so he says, remove this person from among you. Now, for those of you that have studied church discipline, You realize that in Matthew chapter 18, we see church discipline that is of a personal or private nature. It says you go one-on-one to the person. After you go one-on-one to the person, if they will not hear you, you take one or two witnesses so that it may be established before the church. If they won't hear the one or two witnesses, then you take it to the church and then the church decides and potentially excommunication occurs. In this particular passage, what we see is Paul completely skips Paul completely skips those steps and he says, when you are gathered together, get this person out from your midst. He says, remove him from among you. Why does he do that? Because he's not addressing here a sin that was of a personal nature or of a private nature. This sin is of a general and a public nature. And there are times where public sin takes place that public confrontation needs to happen. You say, well, that's not very nice. Church discipline happens for many reasons. Number one, church discipline happens for the sake of the person who is offended. Take this guy who apparently in his mind had thought, it's okay for me to sleep with my stepmom. 
It's love for somebody to come alongside him and say, this is not acceptable in the church of God. This is not following Christ. Brother, you may be deceived and you may not be saved at all. And we want you to know this is not acceptable behavior. That's love to go to him and say to him, this is not okay. It's also love for others. When you go to one person and you say, this is not acceptable behavior, those who are looking around and they see that action and they see that discipline, it deters them from being involved in such gross immorality as well. Thirdly, it protects the church and its testimony because when you have a congregation that allows this to happen amongst their midst and others look on, they go, what's the difference between them and the difference between the world? I see no difference. What is it that they have that I don't already have? And so we have to protect the witness of the church. And then lastly, it is the gospel itself. We must protect the testimony of Jesus Christ, not that we control his power or his testimony as it goes forward, but we must make sure that we are holding it forth as a diamond, that we are holding it forth with our own lives as a living testimony. And when somebody is degrading that testimony, we come alongside and we say, this is not part of the gospel. This is not the way that you should live. This is not acceptable behavior. Remove this person from among you. Verse three, he says, for though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. Now, it doesn't mean you can go use this in your classes afterwards that, you know, I'm, I'm present in body and absent in spirit. That doesn't work. And so it's not the reverse here. But Paul's saying to them, even though I'm not there with you, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Verse four says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ Deliver this man to Satan. Here we see a couple of things I want to draw to your attention. In verse four, it says, when you are assembled. This is where a lot of those who hold to a congregational tradition, this is one of the scriptural passages that they receive that charge from. It says, when you are assembled, that you take this action. And so it is the congregation that does so. And in verse 13, you'll see also that purge this evil is in the plural. And so it's when you come together, the body bearing one another's burdens, working with one another, takes the action in a congregational manner to at that point, remove the person from amongst their midst. Now, Anybody here ever sat in a church discipline ceremony in a local church? Raise your hand if you have. You've been in a church discipline. If we look around 3% maybe of those have actually sat in one, it's a pretty awkward ceremony to sit there and hear somebody's sin talked about in front of others. But it's also warning to us not to commit those same sins ourselves. Here, They gather together as they're assembled as a local body, mourning, not trying to inflict judgment, but seeking restoration. And they come together and they address this sin and they address it as a unit. And it says, when you're assembled, you do this. My spirit's present with the power of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's it talking about with the power there? You're gathered in Jesus' name, but you're also taking this discipline and you're doing it in the name of Jesus Christ because he's given us the ability to bind on earth what would be bound in heaven and to loose on earth what would be loosed in heaven. So as long as we're acting in accordance with his principles and his word, the action taken then will be ratified in heaven as well. Here he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Doesn't that sound harsh? Turn him over to Satan so that he could be destroyed. Sounds harsh, but really it's the kindest thing that we can do to him because what we're doing is we're saying to him, brother, sleeping with your stepmom is not okay. 
And you're not one of us if this is the type of action that you're going to continually take. And so you turn him over to Satan. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that he wants him dead? Well, if that's what it means, he failed miserably because in 2 Corinthians, he's actually restored. That's not what it means. What it means is you're taking him outside of the authority of the local congregation and you're putting him in the world under the realm of Satan where Satan is the ruler of the principalities and the power so that Satan can get a hold of him and he can realize I'm not part of this group called the church. I'm not one of these people called believers. My actions do not demonstrate the fruit that says that I have once repented of my sins and put my faith in Christ. And so I'm not part of that group. And then maybe through being put away, maybe through a little bit of shame in the separation that takes place there, maybe through the devil being able to work in the life, he will say, it's better off for me to repent and to come back to the church, which is exactly what I believe happened in this case when you look at 2 Corinthians 2 and following. Here he says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And now we see the whole point of church discipline so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see it here. Church discipline should never be something that we do out of anger, never something we do out of spite, never something that we do to be mean. It should always be something that we do with restoration in mind. It's all about restoring the brother, as Galatians 6, 1 says. It's all about the day of salvation and telling somebody, you are not living a life that displays the gospel. And because you're not living that life, we have concern for you. You know, in fact, this is why we do discipline here at Cedarville. If you are caught up in doing things that don't fit with the code, our moral code, it's our way of saying to you, brother or sister, we're worried about your salvation because these actions do not reflect the gospel. How can we help you to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ? How can we help to challenge you to do more for him? It's also saying, it's not okay here. It harms the witness of the university when we allow people to do things like this, and so we don't. Now, there are things you're sitting there and you're going, well, what about so-and-so? Well, oftentimes we don't know about so-and-so. And I don't want everybody to come up front right after chapel and tell me about so-and-so either. That's not why I'm preaching this sermon. I'm preaching this sermon to say to you that we are all in this together and that if we love our brothers and our sisters, we will personally also confront them when they're in things that they shouldn't be doing because we love them and we want the best for their life and we want them to honor the Lord and we don't want them trapped in sin that's going to utterly destroy them. And so we confront them and we say that we do so for the glory of Christ and for the gospel of Jesus Christ as well because we want each of our lives to hold forth the gospel and you're never going to be effective for the gospel but when you're trapped in sexual immorality or sin. And in this particular passage, he mentions sexual immorality no less than three different times. And he continues on in the end of chapter six. We need to recognize that sexual immorality is one of the major sins of this generation, sins of this time, with pornography, with homosexuality, with sex outside of marriage. You're in a culture where you're inundated with sex and Victoria has no more secrets. She's already shown them all off to everybody. And at this point in time, it's difficult for you. But I wanna tell you that that's not behavior becoming a Christian and we have to overcome it through the power of the gospel. Here he says, brothers, your boasting is not good. Do you not know, as he gives in his own little illustration here. See, good preachers have a a point and then they have an illustration, right? Here's his illustration. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In our modern lingo, we might say one bad apple ruins the bunch. That might be how we say it. Or I've got to weed out the garden. That might be what he's trying to indicate here. He says in verse seven then, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. 
as you are really unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Now here he goes back and he talks uh, with many different references to Deuteronomy and to references to the Passover. And you would see here that when the Passover happened, you all know your, your Old Testament history, but let's back up and look at it. When the Passover happens, there was a separation that took place. And if you put the blood on the doorpost, that angel was going to skip over your door because you were separated out. You were covered with the blood. The sin then was taken care of in that particular household. If you didn't have the blood over your house, then that death angel was going to come visit you. And then later on, they celebrated the Passover where they would take in their own houses and they would do it. They would get rid of all the leaven and they would get rid of every bit of unleavened for seven days. And then they would start back over with new leaven. Now, how does the leaven work here? Well, you would take some of your leaven each week and you would grab a little bit of the old and dough that you had that had leaven so it would rise and you would put it with the new dough and it would eventually go all throughout and permeate it so that it would rise. And all throughout the Bible, leaven is associated with sin with the exception of one verse in Matthew where it says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Every other time, leaven is associated with sin. And so here he's saying, Christ, our Passover, he's saying the sin is covered with the blood. He's saying the leaven, clean out the leaven because the leaven represents sin. And so he's given them an illustration of something they would have done in their normal lives, saying clean it out and get rid of the sin so that you'll be a new lump, a new creation in Christ. And that's what he's talking about here with this illustration. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the word sincerity there combines the word for judge and the word for sunlight, basically saying to judge in the sunlight, because when you have sunlight, you can see clearer, you can understand what's taking place better. And so we do it with sincerity and truth. And his illustration is to them, get the sin out, get rid of it. It's a good application there for us today too. You're trapped in sin, get the sin out, get rid of it. Now, let me back up and mention one thing briefly to you. What does it mean when he says to deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh? It doesn't mean he wanted him to die. It doesn't simply mean excommunication, although excommunication means to deny fellowship. But what he really is saying here is what we see in other passages of Scripture and that we're not going to continue a same relationship, a fellowship with this person. We're going to have a different relationship. And as we have that different relationship, we're going to be intentional. Because if we continue the same relationship with somebody in church discipline, somebody in sin, somebody that we're trying to work through with, the same relationship involved in those sins means it's okay. Completely separating from them, though, does harm to the gospel where we can't minister to them. And so there's an in-between way of where we don't fellowship with them as a common brother like we would before the sin, but we also don't separate ourselves from them completely because we can't share the gospel with them. I used to live in Texas, as you know. When I lived in Texas, we had an, an acre fenced in the backyard. Dogs loved to play. Kids loved to play. I loved to play. And I noticed one year, it, the acres are a lot to take care of. I noticed one year there were fire ants creeping into the backyard. As these fire ants began to creep into the backyard, I didn't do anything at all. Now, do you have fire ants in Ohio? I don't think so. I haven't seen very many fire ants in Ohio. In, in Texas, they're fire ants are not just fire ants, all right? These are Terminator 4 cyborg fire ants. When the rain comes, these fire ant mounds go from nothing to six or eight inches of mounds of dirt 
completely built up above the earth overnight. If we could harness that power, we would have absolutely no trouble with gas or any other source of power in the history of the world from this point forward. And so I noticed as I walked out that these things were everywhere and one of them had bit my daughter. Now, you know, I'm a little bit protective of my daughter, right? So what did I do? I went outside and the mound that she got bit at, I could see her footprint in it. I decided I'm going to stir this thing up just a little bit and I kicked it around and thousands of cyborg ants descended upon the top of the ground. And one of them happened to get caught on my shoelace that I didn't see. And later on, it bit me on my ankle. That's it. I declared war. Texas style. I went and got my pistol. I don't even know why. It just felt like the right thing to do, right? I mean, you're in Texas, you just do that. And so... I grabbed my pistol and then I put it back up because I realized that was really dumb and decided I would do something else, which was get in my old blue beat up pickup truck that had dents, which I called character marks down both sides, went had a screwdriver stuck in the radio so that it would still work and off to Home Depot I went. I saw it. There was a wall full of stuff and all of a sudden my eyes fell on spectricide. Now I'm an educated man and I know that anything with the word side at the end of it is good for killing genocide, infanticide, you know, all of that side stuff. And so I bought a bunch of it and I went home and poured it everywhere all over these fire ant mounds. You know what they did? They moved. The only thing it killed was my wallet. So good country boy, I go next to the farmer's almanac. How do you get rid of fire ants? Boiling hot water. I thought that's, that's good. That sounds painful. We'll try that. Big pot, boiling hot water, I poured it on the fire ants. You know what happened? I created a natural disaster in ant TV land. They brought all these dead ants up to the top and they got rid of them. It's really weird. I guess they had experienced rain before though, so they didn't drown. So it was only the ones that had the hot water that it killed. And so really all I had done is made a big mess. And so I'm still trying to figure out how to kill these things, right? Well, I come across one more. Gas. Except it was close to the house and my wife said, no way, we're not going to do that. (laughs) And so I never got rid of the fire ants. I worked for years to try to get rid of these fire ants because I had allowed a problem to come into my own backyard, into my own life, and I didn't address the problem when I should have very early on. And then the problem's there, and I've got a mess in the backyard, and I'm still trying to get it cleaned up, and it's an issue. And what I want to get across to you today is that some of you have a mess in your own life because you're involved in sexual immorality, and that's not good for your life, and it's going to be a mess. And the deeper you go into it, the bigger the mess you're going to have, and you got to get it out because you're going to do more for the gospel when you get rid of that. Your life is going to be incredible for Jesus Christ when you get rid of that, but not while you're holding on to the sin of the world. And the things you've got to get rid of are the sexual immorality, the impurities, all of those sins. We've got to get rid of it. Oh, and here he transitions to the scope and I'll cover this quickly. So hang in there with me. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Here he refers back to a previous letter, which we don't have. We think Paul probably wrote four letters to the Corinthians. This is one of the evidence that there was another letter. Apparently they misunderstood it. And it said, not all meaning, uh, not at all meaning sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since you'd have to go out of the world. What he's saying is his sinners are going to act like sinners. Don't let that bother you. The problem's when church people act like sinners. And so here he's saying, don't separate from the world when they do these things. Don't do them with them. But he's not saying go out from among the world and become a monk because we have to engage the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 11, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, anybody who is within the church, anybody who calls themselves a Christian, if he's guilty of sexually immorality or greed or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one as this. Now, whatever this latter part means, it definitely means the Lord's Supper. And so when you excommunicate, when you deny fellowship, when you discipline, you're disciplining that person from participating in the Lord's Supper, from being a member in good standing, but you're not kicking them completely out of the church. If you kick them completely out of the church, they can't come hear the word preached. If they don't hear the word preached, then the Holy Spirit's not gonna stir their hearts to help them get in a right relationship with God. And so this is part of the balance that we have to maintain. Verse 12, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church whom we are to judge. God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from your midst. I'm just gonna read you the list. Deuteronomy 13, 5, 13.5, 13.7, 17.7, 17.12, 19.19, 19.21, 22.21, 22.24. Deuteronomy 24.7. All of these contain this exact same reference here to purge out the person from among you. When they were gathered together as the nation of Israel, they were told over and over and over, sin is in the midst, purge it out. Sin is in the midst, purge it out. Sin is in your midst, purge it out. And here Paul is saying to the church, church, sin is in your midst, get rid of it. Church, sin is in your midst, purge it out. And in this public and general sin, he's saying, go to the church, get rid of it for the testimony of the church, for those who are in attendance at the church to know it's not okay, for that life of the individual believer, the person who's the offender to say to them, this is not Christian behavior and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I close with this. It's a little girl named Gabby. She had a congenitive disorder where she felt no pain. Now, at first, when I was reading the story and, and hearing about it, I thought that would be pretty cool. No pain at all, right? I mean, we all say it. No pain, no gain. I feel no pain. She literally felt no pain. Do you know what she did as a baby? She clawed her eyes out. She chewed on her fingers till they were basically mush. They eventually had to sew her one eye that was good closed so that she wouldn't completely destroy it until she could be old enough to learn that this was not a good thing. She grabbed a hold of a hot light bulb one time and burned her hand because she felt no pain as she sat there holding a hot light bulb and the pain was not there to tell her this is a bad thing, let go. Cedarville students, faculty and staff, I have a fear that in our American culture we feel no spiritual pain. We grab a hold of the things of the world and we hold on to them and we feel no spiritual pain saying let go that is harmful to your spiritual life. And what I want you to get today is that there is a necessity for discipline. There is a necessity for discipline in the life of the church and even in our own lives as we examine ourselves to let go of the sexually immoral things that harm the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that you'll examine your own life. If you're here today and you're caught up into sexual immorality, we want reconciliation and we want what's best for you, but we can't help you if we don't know it exists. We've got a division of student life. They're here to help you. They're here to help you grow and get past some of these personal issues. You have RAs, you have people in the dorm who are gonna work with you and they want you to grow and to get past this. You have professors in your classrooms that want the best for you. And so I challenge you. If this passage could have been written about something in your life and maybe we don't even know about it today, I challenge you, go see somebody and get it right. Go talk to somebody and say, I got to get this out of my life.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, I pray today for our students. Pray for faculty. I pray for staff. I pray for all of us that you would never let us do anything that would harm the cause of Christ. But Lord, that you would help us to hold forth the gospel. Father, I pray for those who are already trapped into things of sexual immorality or other issues. And I pray, Lord, that you would convict them and give them the faith to step forward and to get help so that they could get over this. Father, so that they could be all they could be for the kingdom, for your honor, and for your glory. And so today, I pray for them. Lord, I pray that you will put people in their paths that will challenge them, that will help them, that will guide them, that will come alongside them to help them be all they can be for you. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.